Let's pray together. Father, we come now to the preaching of your word. Your word is true. It never returns void. We can trust it. And you've got something for us, uh, something for me, from your word today. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive the word of truth, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us as individuals and as a church family as well. Lord, we ask that you would do a great work in our hearts and lives. I do pray that if there is any person who is here under the sound of my voice today who does not have a saving relationship with you, whether here in person or uh, the many who watch online each Sunday, I pray that today would be that day of salvation. They bend their knee to a sovereign God and embrace the gift of redemption that's made available only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we pray that you would draw us closer to you today than ever before. Father, that you would challenge us where we need challenged. That you would convict us where we need convicting. That you would encourage us where we need encouraging. That you would use your word to do a great work in our lives. Help us not just to be hearers of the word, but also to be doers. Making application of what we learn today. Trusting by faith, Lord, that you're going to work these things out as we continue that process of sanctification. And Lord, as we've gathered here this morning, we acknowledge that Satan is real. That he desires to steal the the word of the Lord, the seed from falling on good soil and producing fruit in the days to come. But while we acknowledge that Satan is real, we also acknowledge that he is a defeated foe in Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord Jesus, have your will and way done in this place, and we ask it in your name. If you agree with me in prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Join me in Matthew 5 this morning. Join me in Matthew chapter number 5. This morning we're going to begin a brand new series of messages through the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter number 5. And we're calling this series of messages Attitude Adjustment. An attitude adjustment. Have you ever needed an attitude adjustment? Have you ever known, Mike, you need one right now just for lying. Have you ever known anybody that needs an attitude adjustment? Don't look at your spouse right now, you'll get in trouble. We all at times need an attitude adjustment. And the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5, they serve as an introductory remark for the greatest sermon that has ever been preached or that ever will be preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, being a master communicator, he knew that capturing the attention of an audience at the outset of a sermon or a presentation is crucial. He knew that that, that as he spoke these words, he needed to arrest their attention, and he does so with these 12 verses that we're going to be working over over the next several weeks. In these short 12 verses, Jesus masterfully communicates the big idea in summary form that he's going to come back to time and time and time again throughout the course of the Sermon on the Mount and in reality throughout the course of all of his teaching. Everything traces back to the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter number 5. These verses that we're going to be studying, they're commonly called the Beatitudes. And there are a lot of people probably wondering, what does that come from? I've never heard that word before. That's, the reason is it's not a word that comes from a Latin term. In the Latin Vulgate Bible, these were called the Beatitudes. And what that simply means is the blessed life. The blessed life. It's speaking of those who, who possess certain qualities. 
kingdom qualities and kingdom traits that are mentioned in these 12 verses of Scripture. So in essence, our Lord Jesus begins the greatest sermon that has ever or will ever be preached by highlighting that there is joy and blessing and life, real life, attached to certain, possessing certain kingdom qualities or characteristics. And what I find interesting about this text in particular is is the fact that the qualities that Jesus says here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the the qualities that Jesus mentions here, that Jesus says these these are required in order to live in abundance, required to live in blessing, required to live in in joy and in happiness, they're counterintuitive to what most of our culture would say are requirements in order to live blessed lives. They almost seem uh, countercultural. Think about it. If you were to poll the top five uh, social media influencers today and you ask them this question, what does it look like to live a blessed life? I don't think they would utter a single word that's mentioned in the Beatitudes. Instead, they would use terms such as, such as uh, wealth, power, prestige, opulence. If you have these things, it's a, it's a blessed life. But that's not the words that Jesus used. Instead, Jesus describes the best li- blessed life with terms such as poor. Hungry, thirsty, mourning. And that's a good reminder for us that those who are in Christ, we are in fact to live countercultural lives. We, we are in fact to live differently. That's spelled out in Scripture after Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament. One that comes to mind is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9. You are a chosen generation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special People, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. The King James uses this language. You are a peculiar people. You know what that means? You're weird. You're strange. You're different. God's called us to be weird. In comparison to this world that surrounds us we're called to be different we're called to be strange and we're all it's always been this way again throughout biblical history God has called his believers to stand out he's called us to be different when he called Israel his his people he called them to be his people out of the nations. he said to them through Moses in Leviticus 18 2 and I am the Lord your God you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you don't follow their practices You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. He says to Old Testament Israel, be weird, be different, stand out from the culture that surrounds you. In the New Testament, the the call that God's placed upon his people to be different, to stand out, it, it remained. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, this I say therefore... And testifying the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. We're called to be different. And and, and in our being different, we make an impact. When, When we live differently, when we think differently, when we act differently and speak differently and, and work and, and play in a different manner than the unbelieving world around us, it does a couple of things. One, it encourages and inspires fellow believers. Did you know that we're to, we're to encourage and inspire one another? We're to provoke one another to good works, to exhort one another to good works. Listen to what Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy in First. Timothy chapter 4, verse number 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. But listen to what he says. 
but set the believers an example. We're to set one another an example in our speech, in our conduct, in our love, in our faith, in our purity. In the way that we live our lives, we're to set an example for one another within the body of Christ. When we live differently than the world around us, it inspires fellow believers to do the same. But it also bears witness when we live differently than the world around us to to unbelievers that the gospel that we profess is actually true. When my life is different because of something that has happened within me, it gives credibility to my witness. See, the unbelieving world, they can argue with our certain theological standpoints on this or that, but here's one thing that can't be argued with. You can't argue with a life that's been changed. You, you can't argue with the fact that I, I am not who I once was, that I'm different now. Something has happened within me. So simply put, Jesus begins the greatest sermon that's ever been preached with a call to be different, to be in this world, but not to be of it. With that said, we've entered into an interesting cultural moment, have we not? Much like Israel in the Old Testament, we have grown far too comfortable with the affection that surrounds us. It could be argued that among many professing Christians, even Christian churches, the differences between us and the lost world are few and far between. Sometimes even indistinguishable. Dear brothers and sisters, this can't be. This this must not be we're a new creation amen now the quieter you are the longer i preach we're a we're a new creation amen the old is passed away behold all things are made new i'm not going to speak for anybody else here i'll speak for me i have been plucked from the muck and the mire and my feet have been sat upon a solid rock that's what's happened in my life he's put a new song in my heart he's changed me Paul, we, you and I were talking the other day, old gospel song, he made a change in me. In the way that I'm walking, the way that I'm talking, old things passed away, behold, everything's new. He made a change in the life that I'm living, born again, set free, finally forgiven. If he can make a change in me, he can make a change in you. I'm different now. I, I'm not who I once was. For the glory of God and the good of his people and the credibility of the witness of the church, the change that has happened in us not only should be made manifest in the way that we live our lives, but it must be made manifest in the way that we live our outward lives. And that's where these beatitudes come in. They serve as an attitude adjustment. And as we work through this series together, would you do this with me? Would you join me in in this prayer? Lord, show me where I need an attitude adjustment here. Show me where humility is lacking in my life. Show show me what areas of, of my life that are more like the world, less like the world around me and more like the Spirit who's within me. Show, show me areas of my life that don't reflect the change that, that I profess to have happened in my life. Show me where my words, my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes aren't bearing witness to a life that's changed by the power of the gospel. Let this be our prayer through this series. Lord, give me an attitude adjustment. Give me an attitude adjustment. With that being said, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 is going to be our text this morning. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 1 through 3, And seeing the multitudes, he went up onto the mountain, And as he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you say that with me? Blessed of heaven. Now, let me give you a little context here to set up this series, but this sermon as well. Jesus has just begun his public ministry. When this sermon is preached, this is, at, this is at the beginning, towards the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's very recently been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He is very recently, the, the Spirit of God has descended upon him like a dove. Very recently, a voice boomed from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He has very recently fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He has very recently victoriously overcome the temptation of Satan after that 40 day and 40 night fast. He has very recently called his disciples to follow him and he would make them fishers of men. And just before Matthew chapter 5, just before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he's been in Galilee. And he's been teaching with great power and great authority in the synagogues and, and healing people of a myriad of afflictions. Chapter 4 concludes with the fame of Jesus being spread all throughout Syria and, and a great multitude of people from Galilee and Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even beyond the Jordan River now following him. And, and then verse number 1 of chapter 5 starts this way, and seeing the multitudes, seeing this great throng of people following him. He went up onto the mountain where he was seated and his disciples came to him. So Jesus heads away from the crowd and into the mountains with a few of his disciples. And let's pause here and make a very important uh, distinction. While our text here in Matthew 5.1, it does indicate to us that these beatitudes and the sermon that, that follows wasn't preached to the masses, but, but rather to a small group of leaders. It needs to be also understood that Jesus didn't have one set of doctrine for the small group and another set of doctrines for everybody else. We, we don't need to see that in this, in this text at all. Although right here in our text, he's preaching to a very select group Luke records that the same basic content that was preached here in Matthew chapter 5 was preached at other times and in different places. It was preached to different groups in Judea, different groups in Jerusalem. Uh, it was preached on the seacoast of Tyre and, and Sidon. This was preached everywhere. The, the point is this, the principles and the precepts that we read here in the Sermon on the Mount are meant for the multitudes, not just a chosen few. So what we're going to read in these Beatitudes, Jesus is not saying, okay, leaders, okay, church leaders, okay, pastors, okay, Sunday school, this is how you're to live your life, and he's got something else for everybody. That's not it at all. What we're reading is for every person who professes Jesus. Jesus says, this is how you're to live. Is everybody on the same page? That's what Jesus is saying. This is the way that we live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Christ. So, so, so understand that. We need to get that right off the bat. So Jesus goes on to the mountain and get a visual here of what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are just outside of Capernaum. They're, they're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. As Jesus spoke, the disciples are going to be elevated just above him. On that hill over his shoulder was the Sea of Galilee and the majestic mountain range behind it. What a setting for a sermon. They couldn't have forgot this if they tried, could they? This is something that's going to be etched in their memories and in their hearts forever. Another quick note, the Bible here in verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was seated when he began to talk. Now that's a little different for us 
Because we, we look at things culturally in, in the opposite way. Often, most often, when, when there's a, a group to be addressed, the speaker always stands and the congregation, the audience, would be seated. But in Jesus' day, it was quite the opposite. The speaker would always be seated and it was important that he be seated culturally. And I say that because being seated conveyed honor. And it conveyed authority. We still use this today uh, and probably don't even realize that we're, being, uh, that we're actually thinking in these terms. But when a, when a congressman or a congresswoman, when, when we say that they have a, a seat in the house, that's what we're saying. They have a place of honor. They have, have a place of authority. In, in the education field, when someone holds a, a chair over uh, a particular discipline or area of study, when, when uh, a lady is the, the chair of mathematics... Or, or a fellow is the chair of uh, theology. What we're saying is they deserve honor. They deserve respect. So we still look at it in that sense. So, so the idea here when it says Jesus was seated, it's saying that he holds all power and he holds all authority. And then verses 2 and 3. And then he opened his mouth and he taught saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I hate to nerd things up, but you know how I am. I'm a word guy, and, and I read this initially, and I, I saw these words when he opened his mouth and taught them. And the first inclination, the first thing that came to my mind was this. I'll be honest with you. Well, duh. That was the first thing that came to my mind. He opened his mouth and he taught them. Well, how else is he going to teach them? He's not a ventriloquist. He had to open his mouth to teach. But I realized something I think was really important. Matthew had to include that because Jesus often taught his disciples without saying a word, didn't he? Matthew's saying here, he instructed in the original Greek here, the term he opened his mouth to speak was used to preface a weighty, heavy thing that was about to be spoken. And a deep oracle that was significant. Before something significant would be said, as it was recorded, it was, and he opened his mouth to say it. As if in our language today, it would be saying like, now lean in, because what's about to come out of his mouth is something you need to hear. This is a big deal. This is significant. So he opens his mouth, and he begins to teach them. And, and what he said is a big deal. This is the, the Sermon on the Mount is the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. This is everything. This is, this is how we're to live our lives as his followers. And he begins to instruct us on what our lives are to look like as followers of Jesus Christ with backwards words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Quickly, I want to share with you a couple of things that we see in this text. First of all, notice the delight found in this passage. If you mark in your Bibles, underline the word blessed. Blessed. It means happy. That's what it means. And, and I realize there's some who have tried to uh, explain that in a deeper way because happy just seems kind of substandard, but th that's exactly what it means. Jesus launches into the greatest sermon that's ever been preached with this word, happy, blessed, filled with joy. And Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he said this about this, this text. He said, while the Old Testament ends with a curse, the gospel ministry of Jesus begins with a blessing. It begins with a blessing. The word that is used here for blessing is the same word that Jesus uses elsewhere to describe the atmosphere of heaven. A happy place. A joyful place, a content place, a peaceful place. Yet here we're told for those in, who, who are in Christ, a blessed life, a happy life is not only for one day, but it can be for today. That the blessed life is not only for the sweet by and by, but it's possible in the nasty here and now. 
is, is an attainable thing. Let me remind you that Jesus came in part to bless those who would follow and trust him. He came to bless us. Psalm 72, 17 says it this way. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him. They will call him blessed. His very name is blessed. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. If he has blessed you, would you say amen this morning? He's been good, man. He's been good. Please get this, the Christian life is, just know that. The Christian life is not meant to be miserable. It's an incredible blessing to walk in His truth. There's delight in that. Secondly, notice the declaration of this text. We have a delight, there's blessing available. What's the declaration here? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I, I mentioned at the beginning of our sermon today that what we're going to unpack today seems backwards. In fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount seems backwards. Right off the bat, our Lord Jesus Christ, you want to be rich in blessing? Okay, be poor. Be poor. In our modern worldview that has quietly crept into our own way of thinking, and yes, even into our own hearts, it causes us to bristle at that a little bit because we don't equate poverty with blessing. When we think about blessing, our imaginations run wild. We conjure up images of wealth and square footage and opulence. We see all of these things. What is Jesus saying here when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Well, in order to understand what he is saying, it's important that we note what he's not saying first. What Jesus is not saying, he is not placing a premium on material poverty. We need to understand that. Jesus is not placing a premium on material poverty. Poverty in and of itself, material poverty, is not virtuous. There's no virtue in being materially poor, not in and of itself. It's kind of like a man I heard about who went to his boss one day, and he demanded a raise. He said, you're going to give me a raise. And the boss said, finally, after listening to him for a few minutes demanding this raise, he said, why should I give you a raise? He said, I'll have you to know I've got three different companies after me. You need to give me a raise. The man said, really? What companies? He said, the power company, the gas company, <laughs> the phone company. That man was poor, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was blessed, does it? To be materially poor is not necessarily to be blessed. In fact, material poverty is often linked to things like depression, disease, increasing you know, crime rates. You and I both know, just to put this in a practical way, materially poor people who were extraordinarily happy, don't we? But you and I both know also materially poverty, poor people who were miserable. In the same way, you and I both know people who had great material wealth who were so happy. We also know people who were materially wealthy who were miserable. Wealthiest man I've ever met in my life was the most miserable person I'd ever encountered. We, 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 know, we know these things are true. So Jesus is not placing a premium here on, on material poverty. Jesus is not saying, hey, you need to be materially poor if you're going to follow me. That's not absolutely. But it's not a prerequisite to following Jesus. It's not a requirement for a blessed life. Let me tell you what Jesus is also not saying here. Jesus is not saying having a poor disposition equates to a blessed life there are far too many in the christian church who have equated not enjoying life with holiness and and with blessing they believe that they just remain somber and, and serious there's blessing in that and if they catch themselves actually enjoying the life that they have they feel guilty about it and feel like they need to repent 
That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Can I remind you that, that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that, that God created this world in part for us to enjoy it? Listen to Solomon. Solomon, wisest man in all the Bible, said this, Ecclesiastes 2.24, There's nothing better for a person than that he eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Listen to what he says. This also I saw is from the hand of God. It is, everybody lean in. It is okay to enjoy life. It's not wrong. You shouldn't feel guilty for enjoying this blessed place that God has so graciously giving it. There's no virtue in misery. There's no blessing in keeping a perpetual frown on your face. Let me say this. Being a critical jerk is not a fruit of the Spirit. I wasn't going to say it, but it just came out. Proverbs 17.22 says this. A cheerful heart doeth good like medicine. You know what that means in a practical way? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is laugh until your face and belly hurts. To the glory of God. Just enjoy your life. So that's not what Jesus is talking about here, being kind of a poor countenance, poor disposition. So so what does he mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? There are two Greek words that, that speak of poverty. One of two could have been used here. In this text, one of them means that you had to work each day to to get through that day. And if you missed a day of work, then you were in real trouble. That's not the word that Jesus uses here. The other Greek word that is used here is used in Luke 16 to describe Lazarus the beggar. This word means to be utterly destitute, to be completely hopeless in and of ourselves. It means to be helpless. There's no savings to fall back on. There's no family to bail you out. It's to be utterly helpless. And when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the word he chose to use. So we see the delight. There's blessing available. We see a declaration. What are the details found in this passage? Again, in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To those who hope to inherit eternal life, They must first acknowledge their spiritual poverty. That's what Jesus is saying here. You hope to inherit eternal life, you have to first acknowledge how spiritually poor you are. Let me say this very clearly. No person can strut in God's sight. There's no person here, no person who's watching online, no person outside of these doors who has ever rightly climbed up onto Caesar's head, hiked up to the top and and said, wow, look at me. There's no person who has ever stood before the the Atlantic Ocean, how vast it was, and said, ain't I something? How much more so has there never been a person who could stand in God's sight and say, I'm worthy? None. No person can strut in God's sight. Nobody could boast in His presence. When, When we come to Him for salvation, listen, we bring nothing with us that would commend us to God. Not a thing. If you're in Christ today, would you say amen? Now, if you're in Christ today, when you came to Him for salvation, you brought nothing with you. A a pauper before one true king. You came as a beggar. There were no works, no deeds, no goodness that would merit His forgiveness, that would merit His favor. If you're a Christian today, it is because at some point in your life, you acknowledged your sin and your spiritual bankruptcy before Him, and you threw yourself at the mercy and the grace of God, and by His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you've been redeemed. 
That's it. That's the only way any of us come to faith in Jesus Christ. I've heard it said this way. The only thing that I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And some would say to that way, that's not true. I brought faith. Where's faith come from? It is a gift from God. Salvation from beginning to the end belongs to the Lord. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. He initiated my salvation. He works my salvation. He completes my salvation. And He seals my salvation under the day of redemption. It's all His. It's all His. And we have to understand that today there's a phrase that's all too common. I hear a lot. It's, you are enough. And there's a little bit of truth to that. Because And I am not enough. None of us are enough. In fact, it's because we're not enough that we recognize we need a Savior. If I was enough, there'd be no need for Him. Years ago in Geneva, Switzerland, there was a minister who met with a young lady named Charlotte Elliott. And he shared the gospel of Jesus with her. And she was offended by the question that he asked, would you like to receive Christ as your Savior so that you could go to heaven? She was offended by that question, deeply offended because she was good enough to go to heaven without him. She'd done enough good things. She was kind. She used her manners. She was cleaned up and she was charitable. She rejected that question. And the minister who asked it, and he began to pray for her salvation that she would come to understand, acknowledge her sin and her spiritual bankruptcy. Later, she came back to the minister in tears and said, what must I do to be saved? He led her to faith in Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks later, she sat down with a notebook and wrote these words that we sing often today, just as I am, without a plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come just as I am poor, wretched, blind, sights, riches, healing of mine. Yea, all I need in thee I find. O Lamb of God, I come. Those who are poor in spirit, they understand their spiritual bankruptcy before God. There's nothing that I bring that would commend me to the King and would give me entrance into this place called glory but I've trust Jesus to do what I could never do for myself. I wasn't enough, but He is. So I give my life to Him. That's where it begins. Jesus is speaking in those terms. But but how about those who are in Christ? Does this term mean anything for us? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, and I'll tell you why. And we're going to kind of wrap this up this way. Those who desire to live in abundance, to live in blessing, must remain aware of their spiritual poverty apart from Christ. We must remain aware. I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul, I would argue he's a pretty good Christian. I want you to, I want you to hear what he said about himself. Outside of Jesus, it could be argued this is the greatest missionary, preacher, theologian, church planner, and evangelist who's ever walked the face of the earth. Here's what Paul said about himself. A man that God used to write two things for, I know, not I think. I know that in me, that's in my flesh, nothing good dwells. In and of ourselves, we're still spiritually bankrupt. All of us. The only good that's in me is Christ. That's it. 
My understanding is not good enough. It's insufficient. My, my wisdom won't cut it. It's insufficient. My strength doesn't cut it. It's insufficient. My abilities, they're inept. They don't cut it. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Who who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, let's say it together, church, you can. It's living in peace, living in strength, living in provision requires that I, rem I remain as a believer aware of how dependent upon Jesus I really am for everything. If I'm up here preaching in my own power, it's done in vain. No matter how long I've studied, how passionately I might try to communicate these truths, if God's not in it, it's in vain. It's, it's His power. As a father, as a, as a husband, as a grandfather, as a jug player, If, 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 if he's not in it, if it's not in his strength and done in his name, it's in vain. It's in vain. All that I am, all that I hope to do, all, all the, that my ambitions, is all dependent upon him. Period. Outside of that, it's vain. And it's going to fail. To be spiritually bankrupt is to get that. It's, it's to understand that. It's to not have an ounce of pride about me. Not an ounce of pride. When someone comes to me at the end of a service, that was a good sermon. I say the same thing every time Spurgeon said it. Um, I just repeat what he said. He said, I know it was good. Satan told me before I ever left the pulpit. That's <laughs> the way it works. Pride, actually bankrupt before the Lord. So, to put a bow on this, could it be that today you need an attitude adjustment? Could it be that maybe you have thought that your eternal life, you've based your hope for eternal life upon your goodness, upon what you've done? This is I came to church, I read the Bible, I gave to missions. I preached a sermon. Surely, surely these things will commend me to God. The Bible says that our righteousness, that's our best crack at living right, is but filthy rags when compared to the surpassing holiness of our King. These things don't cut it. And maybe this morning you've realized that you are spiritually bankrupt before God. There's nothing that you could bring to say, I should get there. I should get in the gates, Lord. I should be in heaven. There's nothing that you could do. You realize that and say, today, I want to trust Jesus to do for me what I can't do for myself, to be enough. I pray that if you've not made that decision, that today you will, whether here in person or watching online, I can't make that happen for you. I would if I could. I can't. But if you'll repent, and you'll trust Jesus that he is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First John chapter 1 verse 9 says he'll do just that. And he'll grant you eternal life. Or maybe you're in Christ today. Like me, you know Jesus. But as we've worked through this text together, the Lord's spoken to you and you realize that there's a little pride it's crept into your life. And you're not living as though you really 
rely upon him. You say, well, how do I know that, Pastor, whether I'm living truly as though I rely wholly and completely and dependent on God? Let me give you the best way, and I'm done. The best gauge for whether or not I'm living as though I'm spiritually bankrupt without him and I'm really depending upon him for absolutely everything. Listen carefully. This is, this is one of those toe stompers, but hear me out. The best gauge for that is your prayer life. Period. It's your prayer life. If you, if, you, if you really believe I'm spiritually bankrupt before God, I'm poor before Him, I can do nothing without Him, if you really believe that, it'll be reflected in the ferocity of your prayers, the things that you're asking for, the way that you pray, the commitment that you have to prayer. If your prayer life, and God convicted me about this a long time ago, if, you, if your prayer life is good bread, good meat, let's eat. If, if your prayer life is just, just, just there when something goes wrong, if it's not a daily, oh God, I need you today. Not just when things are going poorly, I need you every hour. I need you to provide. I need you to sustain me. I need you to, to minister to me and through me and, and in me. Lord, I, help me, God. Outside of that, we don't recognize our true spiritual poverty, and we're still relying upon ourselves. Does that make sense? It is the greatest gauge of, of our understanding of how spiritually poor we actually are and how dependent upon him that we actually are. So, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that's what he's saying. Blessed are those who understand they can't get to heaven without me. Blessed are those who understand they can't live in abundance without me either. So it's the eternal ramifications, but also earthly ones. Would you bow with me? And Jenkins Holler is going to come and play. As they play, I want to invite you. You need to be saved Give your life to Jesus. Stop relying upon yourself. You can do that today. You don't have to do it in an altar. You can do it at a seat. That's fine. But maybe it's, that's the decision that God's calling you to today. Or maybe you're in Christ again like me. And there's an area or a couple of areas of your life that you recognize I'm not living as though I truly depend on Him. Would you say today, like Lazarus the beggar, Lord... I need you. I'm trying to fix things on my own. I'm trying to remedy issues on my own. I'm relying on my own strength, on my own power, my own wisdom. Lord, I'm bankrupt before you today, and I acknowledge I need you. Salvation surrenders. The altar would be open if you'd like to come. Please do. Father, in Jesus' name, this invitation belongs to you. We won't manipulate it, rush it, hurry it, anything else. We ask that, Father, you'd grant us faith to respond to your word so that we're not just hearing it and being informed but we're applying it as people who have been transformed thank you for speaking to me today thank you for speaking to us today help us to receive it well in jesus name amen would you